0: Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we're robbing our workplace to try to pay off our questionable boyfriend's debt and taking a drive out on the interstate to an even more questionable motel. A cultural touchstone and masterpiece of suspense This episode features Alfred Hitchcock's seminal film, Psycho. Perhaps more than any film we'll discuss during this series, Psycho is a film so completely entrenched in the cultural consciousness that it's hard to separate the film from its myth. Multiple generations now have grown up with the shower scene being as ubiquitous as Mickey Mouse or Dr. Frankenstein shrieking, "'It's alive!' The shrill strings of its score, an instant shorthand for stabbing and murder. Yet oddly, unlike Boris Karloff's shambling monster, Psycho's Edge hasn't been blunted by the swathes of parody and pastiche. It plays nearly as well today as it did in the early 1960s, still feeling shocking and subversive, like you're watching a movie getting away with something that it probably shouldn't. Why is that? In Alfred Hitchcock's run of mid-career, high-cost, technicolor epics, why is it that his micro-budget black-and-white indie movie is the one that is still a household name today? Our story of Psycho begins in the late 1950s. Audrey Hepburn is pregnant, and that's bad news for Paramount she's scheduled to star in a new movie for them directed by their in-house box office magnet, Alfred Hitchcock. The film, an adaptation of comedy crime thriller No Bail for the Judge, doesn't work with a pregnant lead, and Paramount can't afford to wait for The Breakfast at Tiffany's star to have her baby before it shoots. Most unfortunate of all, Hitchcock is refusing to recast. He's on the last movie of his multi-film contract with the studio, and he seems determined to take advantage of this situation and adapt a different novel instead. This novel, the moderately well-selling pulp-chiller Psycho, is far too repulsive to turn into a film. Attempts to discourage this by denying him his usual budget have been fruitless. He's chosen to shoot the film in black and white with the crew from his TV show in order to keep the cost to a million dollars. The contract's a contract. This director is nothing if not stubborn, and unfortunately for Paramount, they're the ones who are going to have to take the fall on his boundary-pushing, lowest common denominator, Bad Taste passion project. No one's going to show up at the pictures for this filth, right? Psycho, the novel, is written in 1959 by American author Robert Bloch. Here to talk about the history of the novel is Andrew Hunt, a professor of history at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada.
1: Psycho was a novel written by Robert Bloch uh who and it was uh, published in April of 1959. Robert Bloch was a an author of uh, sort of pulp fiction short stories and novels. Uh he's what the Beatles might refer to as a paperback writer. Uh up until Psycho most of his novels were published by sort of sp- these kind of uh, paperback publishing houses like Avon and Ace Pocket Books and and Dial Press, but Psycho was uh, actually published uh, in April of 1959 by Simon & Schuster. So that was a big publishing house. By this time, Block had established a name for himself as uh, author of uh, science fiction, uh, crime, uh, horror stories, uh, mostly short stories. A lot of his stories had been published in uh, various popular magazines like Weird Tales and Amazing Stories and so forth. Uh, but uh, Psycho was actually given uh, more of a, uh, a royal treatment than a lot of his previous books. It was, uh, like I said, published by one of the top publishing houses in the country, Simon & Schuster. It was marketed quite effectively. It was heavily reviewed. It got a lot of notice when it came out in, in the spring of 59. Uh, and basically, the story of Psycho... Uh, is very similar to the movie the movie followed it fairly faithfully in a lot of ways Uh, the basic plot was that the main character in the novel mary crane uh, steals forty thousand dollars she's hoping to help pay off her lover's debts with that money she steals it from a real estate company where she works she flees uh, with the money she's driving along uh, through a rainstorm and stops at the bates motel uh, she meets Norman, gets to know him, uh, and then, uh, she takes a shower. And in the shower scene in the novel, which is very, very brief, she's beheaded. And, um, it's just a, it happens like in, in, a, in one sentence. It's just very quick. And from that point on, the, other characters in the novel, uh, Mary's sister, Lila, um, Mary's uh, lover, Sam, uh, try to find her. They hire a private investigator named Arbogast who goes to look for her, and he's murdered in the novel. And eventually, they kind of close in on Norman, who is captured. So the, the basic premise or, or plot of, of Psycho is is very similar in that, in that um, you, you, you're led to think that Norman's mother is, is, is doing the crime and that she's the one who's carrying it out and that in in the novel norman turns out to be um the murderer and he's captured and uh but in the novel one major difference from the film is that norman is a middle-aged man he's he's uh balding he's kind of pudgy he's um a, a little bit you can kind of tell in the novel he's a bit unhinged um he's into the occult uh and he uh he isn't nearly as sympathetic in the novel as the cinema version of Norman played by uh, Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins' character uh, portrayal of Norman is far more sympathetic. Uh, That had to do with changes in the script uh, made by the screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, who was a newcomer to to film, who adapted Block's novel uh, very successfully to, to film, stayed loyal, stayed Basically, he he remained faithful to much of the novel, but definitely changed uh, Norman around uh, uh, quite a bit. And uh, and then they changed the name of Mary Crane to Marion Crane in the film. Uh, just one other interesting note about the novel Psycho is that novelist Robert Block actually lived in a town called Wayaga, Wisconsin, which was about a half hour from where this serial killer Ed Gein lived and Ed Gein was a famous uh, Wisconsin serial killer who uh gained fame because he murdered two two people he uh killed them uh, very horribly and and uh, and but then he also was a grave robber who went in and robbed graves and and stole body parts and and made these kind of knickknacks and keepsakes and so forth around the home, like window shades and so forth out of human skin. And his case was pretty famous in um, the late 1950s. And Block definitely uh, followed the case and said in subsequent interviews that the uh, Ed Gein case definitely influenced his uh, decision to write Psycho. He didn't model the novel too closely after the Ed Gein case, but he was certainly uh, inspired by it. So when the novel was published in in the spring of 1959, um, I wouldn't call it one of the biggest bestsellers of the year. There were a lot of bestsellers that year, Exodus, Dr. Zhivago, uh, Lolita, uh, novels that were right up at, at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It didn't quite get that high, but it sold fairly briskly. Um, but Alfred Hitchcock read it, uh, in the spring, not long after it came out and immediately bought the rights to it, uh, for $9,500. Um, he thought it was quite a a powerful book. He was especially struck by the, the shower scene, as I said, a very brief scene in the book. And, um, he, right away, he knew he wanted to make it into a film. And, uh, and so that's kind of the, the, Genesis or the the origins of of the novel and how it was adapted. And and Hitchcock was uh, there's a story that Hitchcock actually hired somebody to go out and buy copies of the book. So readers couldn't get their hands on it and find out the kind of twists and turns in the novel. But uh, it, it I don't know how truthful those stories are. Hitchcock certainly kept his project under wraps. He didn't make any public statements about buying the rights, and once the film went into production, he was uh, very secretive about it. But that's kind of the the story behind uh, Hitchcock uh, reading Psycho and being very taken with it.
0: It isn't Hitchcock's desk that the original novel first lands on. It's that of his trusted assistant, Peggy Robertson. Peggy is Hitchcock's assistant in name only. A more accurate job description one refused her by the gender politics of the time, would be associate producer and script supervisor. When Psycho shows up on her desk, Paramount has already denied the idea of it being turned into a film. After reading a great review of it in the local paper, however, Peggy pushes forward and shows it to Alfred Hitchcock. She would go on to quietly help produce the film without credit, as she had done for years previously and would do for decades after. So who is Alfred Hitchcock at this moment in time? Our guest, Andrew Hunt, gives us a rundown on his life up until this point.
1: Alfred Joseph Hitchcock uh, was born in London, England, on August thirteenth, 1899. He uh, came from a household of fairly strict Catholics. His father had a Reputation for being an especially stern disciplinarian. Uh, there was one point in Hitchcock's youth, he, Hitchcock loved to tell this story that his father actually sent him to the, uh, local police station with a note, uh, telling the police to lock up Hitchcock, uh, young Alfred, because he had been misbehaving. And, uh, this note had been written by his father. Uh, Alfred remembered staying in a jail cell for about 10 minutes as the, police kind of symbolically shut him in there Uh, and that kind of theme of being kind of the wrong man or or somebody who who who's being blamed for something they didn't do was something that really resonated with Hitchcock and and I think that's dates back to his childhood of being sort of raised in a strict household Uh, his father however died when Hitchcock was 14. he was much closer to his mother uh and he grew up uh attended the Jesuit school St. Ignatius College. Uh, He was very artistic, took art courses at the University of London, and got his start as an advertising designer at a telegraph and cable company. But that didn't last long. He he very quickly moved into the film industry, uh, which was still relatively in its infancy in England at that point. He went to work for an American firm that had just opened an office in London and was opening studios called famous players Lasky, which would later morph into paramount. And it was at famous players that he got his design. uh, It was at famous players that he got his start as a title card designer. Uh, So he had that very artistic sensibility. He had a great eye for design, for uh, visuals he was really into visuals and he got his start in their art design department uh and was kind of climbed climbed through the studio hierarchy from there uh he got his start directing films in 1922 he was only 23 when he made his first film which um, unfortunately is lost it was called number 13 but he continued to climb in the in the english uh, film industry and build his reputation as a master filmmaker as a great craftsman of film he really established his reputation as a as a director of thrillers with a movie called the lodger uh, a story of the london fog which was kind of loosely based on the jack the ripper murders which hadn't Been that long ago before the film was made in 1927 they happened in 1888 so uh it was he he made the film and you know relatively still closely to at a time when a, a lot of people still had memories of that horrible crime but uh one of the things you can tell when you watch hitchcock's later films you can really tell that he got his start in silent films because hitchcock is really a visual storyteller and he feels quite comfortable in most of his films with long silences and when you watch psycho you see a lot of long silent scenes in the film the scenes uh, after marion um has dinner with norman and leaves his office there's a long long silences there where she eventually gets into the shower and norman's watching through the peephole there are the scenes of norman driving the car with uh, marion's body in it into the swamp the scenes of arbogast in investigating bates house and so forth there are all these incredible scenes in the film that, that really show that Hitchcock uh, got his start in silent films that he had this visual storytelling technique that he had developed in that era and carried it with him into sound and continued to build his reputation once sound films came. Uh, he made some great films in England, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934, The 39 Steps, from 1935, Sabotage, uh, another great film from 36. The Lady Vanishes. All of these films helped to cement Alfred Hitchcock's reputation as a master filmmaker of suspense films, of thrillers. And he married in, in 1926, uh, Alma Ravel, um, Al, who became Alma Hitchcock. They had one uh, a daughter, Patricia, And they relocated to Hollywood in 1940, where Hitchcock uh, sort of famously transitioned into Hollywood films with the very breathtaking, elegant uh, uh, thriller, psychological thriller, Rebecca, which was made in 1940 uh, for Selznick International Pictures, uh, William O. Selznick. knew of of Hitch's great reputation on both sides of the Atlantic. By this time, Hitch was the most famous director in England. And he continued along this path of making these uh, very elegant, suspenseful thrillers throughout the 40s, films like Foreign Correspondent in 1940, Suspicion 41, uh, Saboteur in 1942. Uh, one of my all-time favorite Hitchcock films, Shadow of a Doubt uh, from 1943. And he continued on after the war, Spellbound, Notorious. You can kind of go through his filmography and they're all films that share this kind of common thread of of thrillers, of, of kind of suspense films where the tension builds up at a kind of slow burn. And that was Hitchcock's style. And he began to move by the 1950s more into these very lavish technicolor films. His first uh, really big technicolor film was a film called Rope with Jimmy Stewart from 1948, which was very innovative because it was filmed as if it was made in one shot. And um, and it's quite gripping to watch. But, um, but Hitchcock uh, continued to make these kind of lavish uh, thrillers throughout the 1950s, uh, uh, some of them more black and white, like Strangers on a Train and, and I Confess, but a lot of his his films were these kind of big budget color films, films like Dial M for Murder uh, from 1954, Rear Window, another another film from 54, um, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, uh, Vertigo, North by Northwest. These were all these kind of. Big, elegant, uh, uh, lavish films. Many of them had the sort of leading Hollywood men of the day starring in them, like Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant and and Montgomery Clift and Henry Fonda and so forth. So, um, so Psycho, in many ways, represented for Hitchcock uh, a kind of sharp turn, uh, a move away, a very distinctive move away from these lavish films, uh, much more into a into a kind of darker uh, noirish style horror film. And there were reasons why he had, uh, why he moved in that direction that had to do with him really wanting to try something new at that stage in his career and reading the block book, being taken with it, especially that brief shower scene, which he kind of reimagined uh, in the film. And so in many ways, Psycho by the time Hitchcock began to take interest in the project in 1959, represented a sharp turn for him away from these kind of lavish color films and more towards something that was edgier and grittier and darker than anything he had made before.
0: Other than Peggy Robertson, the key woman in Alfred Hitchcock's life and work is his wife Alma. Alma is a screenwriter, editor and film director from a filmmaking family. She meets Hitchcock through work and quickly the two are creating films together, filling various roles and working their way up the ladder, until eventually he's directing and she's co-writing scripts with him. On Psycho, she brings her influence, as she does to all of his films. Most notably, when watching a cut of the film very near release, she spots that Janet Lee visually swallows in a shot after she's supposed to be dead. This leads to a hasty re-editing of the film's negative just weeks before its premiere. The transition from script to screen is not an easy one. The adaptation of Bloch's novel is nothing if not complicated, involving two different screenwriters and input from both Alfred and Peggy. But with everything falling into place, how will the making of the film itself go? professor
1: Andrew Hunt, breaks it down here. Well, Alfred Hitchcock read Psycho right away. If you look at the timeline of when the book was published in April of 1959, and when filming actually started on Psycho, it was just a matter of months uh, before Hitchcock started to actually turn this novel into a film. And actually, the trade papers were already announcing in June that Hitchcock was working on his next project, but he was keeping it under wraps. He was very careful not to say much. And I think that really piqued curiosity because in the past, Hitchcock was more open about the various projects he was working on. And this time he seemed to be very secretive about it, keeping it under wraps. Hitchcock famously faced a great deal of resistance from his home studio of Paramount when he was trying to make this film. Paramount executives did not want to see this film get made. They were steadfastly opposed to it. They thought it was too dark, too violent, too edgy, that it would uh, drive audiences away uh, with its kind of starkness and horror. Uh, They really were opposed Hitchcock at every turn and tried to sabotage his efforts, which is quite remarkable because Hitchcock had this reputation even by this time as one of the greatest directors in Hollywood. So the fact that these Paramount executives, these bean counters at Paramount, who nobody ever seems to remember now, were always trying to, you know, get in Hitchcock's way and prevent him from making this film is really quite a telling. Uh, and Hitchcock actually ended up financing Psycho on his own. He waived his director's fee. He, put up the financing himself he actually borrowed money uh I've even read somewhere that he he borrowed against the mortgage on his house he he really did everything he could to make this film he absolutely had his heart set on it and if you watch psycho what you really remember when you think about the story of the production of it is that this is really an indie film this is really Hitchcock working outside of the studio system because they were constantly throwing roadblocks in front of him, trying to prevent him from making this film. So Hitchcock was going against the conventional wisdom. He was going against the studio hierarchies. He was doing everything he could to get this film made. And he ended up uh, actually using the uh, crew uh, that was being used on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents television show. Uh, There was this television show that uh, started in 1955 called Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It was an anthology TV show. Uh, Many of the episodes were focused on uh, suspense stories. They often had famous guest stars on them. Hitchcock would introduce each episode with a kind of uh, funny introduction. Uh, You could see his sort of uh, his, there was this kind of caricature of the side of his face, of a profile and he would kind of walk right up to it and then he would uh, introduce each episode in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way and um Hitchcock knew that knew, knew the crew quite well on these on, on the on the tv show they filmed the episodes at Universal Studios so Hitchcock decided that he was gonna that he was going to make this film outside of the paramount uh, uh, uh sort of uh, area of control he he didn't he decided he was going to get as far away from paramount as he could go into the san fernando valley and and make this film on a on a low budget it ended up being a film with a budget of under a million dollars the budget was actually specifically eight hundred and six thousand dollars. uh the actors in the film uh, all agreed to take pay cuts um the uh especially the stars janet lee and 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 anthony perkins both agreed that they would work for less to make this film they too believed in it and hitchcock used a lot of people from the tv show uh, most notably cinematographer john russell who shot the film russell was a veteran of many b pictures uh, worked on a lot of television shows but his cinematography of psycho was absolutely brilliant uh, they went to work in mid-November. Uh, filming was went relatively smoothly. Like I said, Hitchcock kept it a closely guarded secret, and the filming lasted until the beginning of February. So it lasted a little under three months. So it's a quick production. Hitchcock filmed it almost like a, a B movie. He he had a very limited budget to work with, and uh, but he had uh, he had performers in the film who were really. Completely behind him, not just Janet Leigh and, and and Anthony Perkins, but Vera Miles as as Lila Crane. She had worked with with Hitchcock before, uh, John Gavin, Martin Balsam, um, John McIntyre, Frank Albertson. These were all just very they very memorable actors who who played roles that really stood out. Even the small roles in Psycho were were really sort of fully drawn and richly per, performed and fully realized. Uh, characters. So uh, Hitchcock had a wonderful uh, uh, cast and crew to work with. And uh, he, he, luckily for him, because he was financing this, it all went very smoothly. Uh, and, and his daughter, Patricia, remembered Hitchcock was not a director who filmed in a lot of takes. So he was able to kind of get a lot of it filmed quite quickly. And, uh, and the production uh, luckily uh, wrapped up on schedule by February 1st. The late
0: 1950s is a time of boundary-pushing in Hollywood. Over the short span of a few years, Psycho, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Suddenly Last Summer, and Some Like It Hot are all released. This new movement towards showing risqué and provocative content on screen is a groundbreaking and hard-fought one. For the past 20 years, Content in Hollywood films has been under a strict moral chokehold by the Motion Picture Production Code, otherwise known as the Hayes Code. Overseen by the MPPDA, known as the MPA in 2023, the Code sought to prevent cinema from lowering the moral standards of those who saw it. It restricts the use of swearing and Nudity, sympathetic crime, homosexuality, and mixed-race romance, amongst other things. The Code is still well in effect in the late 50s, when Psycho was being created. But its limits are beginning to be pushed. There's a change in culture happening. Studios are getting into back-and-forths with the MPPDA over censorship, And some films are even releasing without the MPPDA's seal of approval at all. Some Like It Hot does this. Now is perhaps the earliest that Psycho could ever have been made. It depicts crime, nudity and quote-unquote sexual perversion, things the MPPDA would have been able to completely deny just years earlier. Perhaps it's Hitchcock's clout which gets it over the edge, but after numerous slight cuts and changes, removing a shot of a bottom here and a breast there, the MPPDA's censorship team begrudgingly give Psycho the OK. Notoriously, Hitchcock sends them the same cut twice in a row to see if they notice, and sure enough, the board doesn't coming back with a new set of thoughts. Of course, Psycho would be nothing without its stars, specifically Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins. Andrew Hunt talks about them
1: now. The main performers in Psycho uh, were Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins. Janet Lee grew up in California, raised in Stockton, California. She got her start as a contract player at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Her first movie, Role was in a, a MGM B Western called The Romance of Rosie Ridge, which she, she starred in opposite Van Johnson. And she was in a lot of movies in the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s that were good, but not particularly memorable, uh, with the exception of a couple of them. Uh, Anthony Mann's epic Western, Naked Spur from 1953, she gave an outstanding performance. And like Mann's other Westerns, it was a uh, a critically acclaimed and and quite beautifully made western but it was really her performance as the character susan vargas the wife of a mexican police inspector uh, uh played by charlton heston in orson Welles's film noir masterpiece touch of evil that gave her reputation a big boost and really cemented her reputation as somebody who Was quite, felt quite at home in sort of darker performances and sort of more noirish, uh, performances. And I think in some ways that film probably had a bit of an influence on Psycho. There, there's this actually scene in a, in a kind of, uh, sleazy motel where she's holed up and, and she's, uh, in there because her husband has to go take care of some business and he wants her to be safe in there and it's very uh, and when psycho comes along later this uh, this this whole setting of a motel is very reminiscent in some ways of of touch of evil uh, but touch of evil was a big boost for her and and she seemed like a natural to hitchcock who wanted her to uh, be in psycho and she didn't really need any uh, begging, she read the script and was automatically very impressed with it she, she was uh really gung-ho to star in it and so hitchcock cast her in psycho as marion crane the uh, the main female character uh, and it was an unforgettable performance it was widely regarded now as as one of janet lee's finest moments she she, she had many fine moments on film two years later she was in the manchurian candidate another great film uh but by the late 60s and into the 70s her career was starting to wane somewhat and there was there's been a lot of speculation that maybe psycho had an adverse effect on her film career as well as the film career of of anthony perkins who was forever associated with norman bates after he appeared in psycho uh perkins lived a fascinating life He was the son of a stage and movie actor named Osgood Perkins. Uh, His father was pretty well known in in, in the 20s and in the Great Depression, and uh, was in uh, films and on stage. Most notably, he he had a pretty prominent role in the original version of Scarface, uh, and was a, a, a very good kind of character, solid character actor, and constantly got roles. Uh, but his father died when when Anthony Perkins was quite young, so Perkins became very very close to his mother, uh, kind of like Hitchcock. Uh, he uh, was extremely close to his mother. Sometimes some some chroniclers and biographers of, of Anthony Perkins say he was maybe too close. There was there, later on he he talked about uh, uh, sexual abuse happening in his childhood, uh, but anyway he he was quite a remarkable young actor he got his start acting when he was a teenager in Summerstock theater he was very shy and introverted he he had to overcome that he was also a method actor who who studied the famous method acting techniques that were so popular in the 1950s the kind of uh techniques that Marlon Brando studied and Montgomery Clift and other actors who were trying to bring greater realism to their roles and so he was very much in that kind of newer tradition of, of of method acting um he made his film debut rather unexceptionally uh kind of like Janet Lee in a film that's now largely forgotten a comedy drama called The Actress from. 1953, which starred Spencer Tracy, directed by George Cukor. Uh, But he gained fame for a critically acclaimed performance on Broadway. He had the lead role in a play called Tea and Sympathy, directed by Elia Kazan, about a prep school student who is struggling with his own sexuality and masculinity. Uh, And he's befriended by the older wife of of a coach, at this prep school. And it's quite a poignant, uh, they made it into a film as well. It's quite a poignant, uh, a story. Perkins was also a teen idol. Before the making of psycho, he actually recorded a number of songs and they, there were some albums released with, uh, the music of Anthony Perkins, uh, a couple of albums that came out in 1958 on the RCA Victor label. One was called On a Rainy Afternoon and and the other was called From My Heart. He sang uh, a a lot of sort of, he was a crooner. He sang a lot of love songs on those albums. He he, he sang a song called Moonlight Swim, which was his biggest hit. I think it reached number 24 on the Billboard Hot 100 uh, in 57, 58, that period in there uh but he was always insecure he was always self-deprecating he in interviews even before even right up until the making of Psycho he would talk about how he was unsure of himself how he didn't consider himself good looking how he thought his head was too small how uh he he disliked being out in public at nightclubs and and this kind of thing and he he said in his own words I'm not really well suited to be a movie star But he was still an exceptional actor, and he was cast in some really standout roles before Psycho, most notably one called Friendly Persuasion in 1956, of which he was nominated for an Academy Award. And Fear Strikes Out, in which he played a baseball player, center fielder Jimmy Pearsall, who struggled with bipolar disorder.
0: While Alma and Peggy are key forces in Hitchcock's career, it would be remiss not to mention some of his more uncomfortable working relationships with women. Accounts differ greatly from performer to performer, but most notably the actress Tippi Hedren, who works with Hitchcock on The Birds, alleges that he pushes her into unsafe working conditions and crosses sexual boundaries with her. It's also been noted that with most of his higher budget non psycho films, Hitchcock closely oversees the creation of extensive wardrobes for his leading ladies and expects them to wear them even when not shooting. He reportedly talks inappropriately to these women as well, claiming that he hasn't had sex in 30 years. For the most part, the creation of psycho is free from anecdotes like this. But it's hard to talk about Hitchcock and his legacy without mentioning some of his infamous behavior. Moving back to Psycho itself, however, with production finished, the film still has a long way to go before being complete. Our guest Andrew Hunt talks about the post-production of Psycho.
1: Editing process in Psycho and the post-production process of the film is actually quite fascinating The editor who worked on Psycho was George Tomasini. Uh, Tomasini had worked with Hitchcock before on uh, some previous films, Rear Window, uh, Vertigo, uh, North by Northwest. And Tomasini's editing was absolutely brilliant in in the film Psycho. He is actually regarded very highly as as one of the sort of top Hollywood editors. And um, he became especially famous for editing the shower scene in Psycho, which is arguably the most famous scene in any film ever made. Uh, the shower scene definitely became a kind of landmark moment in the history of cinema. And it's this famous scene that it's interesting because it was so brief in the book. It was just like, like I said, it was just one sentence long in the book. but in the film version of it it was actually storyboarded by a famous uh, designer named saul bass who actually went in and kind of uh, sort of storyboarded each moment of the shower scene and hitchcock followed the storyboard quite carefully and uh and then thomasini uh, did a brilliant job of bringing all those different flashpoints moments in the shower scene together into one seamless whole and in fact the shower scene has been written about extensively in fact there's an entire book about the the the, the psycho shower scene it was uh, written by a film historian named Philip J Scary uh, S K E R R Y not S C A R Y uh, Philip J Scary wrote a book called uh, Psycho in the Shower A History of Cinema's Most Famous Scene and goes into quite a bit of detail about the uh, origin of the scene and the making of the scene and it really was quite complex interestingly psycho is one of the most heavily written about movies ever made there have been a lot of books and articles about it beginning with Stephen rubello's 1990 book alfred hitchcock and the making of psycho and uh, a lot of these books Uh, Go into depth about the post production process, particularly Alfred Hitchcock's uh, relationship with the American composer Bernard Herrmann, who had worked with Hitchcock before on The Trouble with Harry, uh, The Wrong Man, Vertigo, uh, North by Northwest. And he wrote an absolutely unforgettable film score for Psycho. Uh, In fact, Alfred Hitchcock said repeatedly after Psycho came out that the film score is one of the main characters in the film, that the film would not have been the same without the iconic score. And Hitchcock essentially got out of the way and let Herman do his work, uh, let him compose this uh, really remarkable uh, film score uh, that really was quite unique in its time and uh, sort of helped to create the mood that Hitchcock was really hoping to create in Psycho, that kind of dark uh a tense horrifying uh, quality in the film that uh, really came through thanks to not just the incredible performances particularly by anthony perkins as norman bates uh, but also uh, uh, his co-star in the film the, the the great musical score by bernard Herrmann. uh so that was a major component of the film and as post-production was wrapping up hitchcock was already at work on promoting the film and he was mindful of wanting to kind of get the word of mouth out about the film he he thought that word of mouth would be especially helpful so he was actually mindful of the the filmmaker william castle who had made a lot of uh, so-called gimmick movies william castle was a director of these kind of low-budget horror films like the house on haunted hill with vincent price quite a few of his movies had vincent price Uh, The Tingler and The Homicidal were all these movies that he directed that had these various gimmicks attached to them. Uh, The House on Haunted Hill had something called a merjo with a skeleton that came out on a wire and flashing red eyes above the unsuspecting audience that would spook them out in the scary scenes. Uh, The Tingler was made with these kind of vibrating theater seats, but they called it percepto. During these kind of scary moments, the the seats would vibrate. Uh, Homicidal had a fright break in case people were too scared and wanted to leave. So Hitchcock, uh, you know, sort of took a page out of William Castle's approach and uh, decided to kind of create a word of mouth campaign. And one of the main uh, gimmicks that Hitchcock created was what he called a no late admission policy. Uh, and the idea behind the no late admission policy was that once the film starts, nobody would be allowed into the theater uh, after the film begins, um, because this film, he said, has to be seen from the very opening and you can't come into it late. You have to you have to get there on time. It's it's essential. And, um, you know, he issued a statement. Uh, in fact, I have the, the statement here. He said, um, we won't allow you to cheat yourself. You must see Psycho from the very beginning. Therefore, do not expect to be admitted into the theater after the start of each performance of the picture. We say no one, and we mean no one, not even the manager's brother, the President of the United States, or the Queen of England, God bless her. So that was Hitchcock's kind of warning to people, don't come into the theater after the movie begins. And that kind of campaign got around. And of course, Hitchcock couldn't enforce that with with movie theater owners. He, uh, Some movie theater owners uh, followed along with it and decided to not let people in after the movie began. But most of them didn't want to turn away good paying customers. Uh, but still, that kind of word of mouth spread around that this is a movie that... You know, you have to be too on time. There's something shocking about it. And, you know, it's easy to forget from the vantage point of 2023, just what a shocking film cycle was in 1960, um, because it was a film that took a couple of uh, very dramatic twists and people weren't quite used to the twists that it took, uh, especially having a, a leading lady, who's brutally murdered uh and we see it on the screen uh about a a little over a third of the way into the film we just we have to sort of recall because we've sort of lived in this age of films that are shocking and over the top and 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 everything we have to kind of remember this period 1960 that nothing like this had ever happened before and and hitchcock being the stature that he was one of the greatest directors in the world, even recognized as that in his day, uh, taking this chance and, uh, and, and having these very shocking scenes in, his, in, his films, uh, in, in, in his film, Psycho really, uh, uh, really caught audiences off guard. And, and a lot of them were just absolutely floored by the film. In fact, there were a lot of news stories after the making of Psycho about, um, people who would not actually take showers after the, the, the movie, they started to transition over to taking baths all the time because they got so spooked out uh, by the shower scene in Psycho that they just didn't want to take a chance, that uh, some, they didn't want somebody to come in and start hacking them up. Uh, but the film was a runaway success. It made a fortune. It made um, around $50 million in the early 60s with a budget of slightly over eight hundred thousand, and so it was widely regarded as a major success story, and uh, and also a critically acclaimed um, film as well. It was very well received at the time it was made. It was celebrated um, even in its day as as a as a work of art by certain critics. Some critics didn't didn't like it very much, but uh, a lot of critics really heaped praise on the film and thought that it was uh, quite powerful and and it overall got got very strong reviews after it opened uh it premiered on uh excuse me june 16th it premiered on june 16th at the, the demille theater in manhattan and then it went into uh, a nationwide opening across the united states and other parts of the world uh on september 8th 1960 and uh Uh, Film was not the same after that. It was definitely a a, a game-changer, to say the least.
0: While Psycho the film takes over the world, Psycho the novel receives a bump in popularity and is comparatively forgotten. However, Robert Bloch doesn't stop with the original novel. Thirty years later, in the early 1980s, when the film is already well-regarded as a classic, he decides to write a sequel... This novel, Psycho 2, tells the story of Norman Bates breaking out of prison 20 years later and driving to Hollywood. A studio there is making a film of his life and the events of the first Psycho, and he makes a point of going there and trying to murder those involved, including the actress playing Marion Crane. Of course, Universal Studios, who had the rights to Psycho at this point, weren't thrilled by the direction the novel took. They decide to go in a completely new direction with their film, Psycho 2, which releases the following year, with next to nothing in common with Bloch's book. This doesn't discourage Bloch from releasing a third novel in the series, Psycho House, come 1990, however. Much like the second instalment, This novel goes in a slightly satirical direction, with murders beginning to reoccur at the Bates Motel once it's reopened as a tourist attraction. Perhaps the most complex part of Psycho's legacy, however, is its remake by Gus Van Sant in the 1990s. Van Sant, a young gay American director, approaches Psycho almost inversely from Hitchcock. After the critical success of his sophomore film, Drugstore Cowboy, Gus Van Sant is approached by major studios with offers of work. You can get actors to work with you, they say. We want those stars. We'll give you any IP you want, any remake or sequel. Universal, which owns the rights to Psycho at the time, are particularly pushy. Van Sant responds by saying that he wants to do a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. He says it'll be an interesting experiment as no one has ever done it. Universal shrugs their shoulders, confused, and sends Van Sant on his way. A few years later, Van Sant is at what is debatably his career peak. After a couple of misses, he returns to critical success with To Die For and has one of the hits of the year with Goodwill Hunting in 1997. Goodwill Hunting is nominated for an excess of Oscars, and before the ceremony, all of the studios try once again to get in touch with Van Sant, offering him deals, hoping to get in before he walks off with a pile of trophies. Again, he pitches to Universal a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. And this time, high on Oscar buzz, they respond with a resounding yes. The film, shot in colour, is, bar one or two small differences, a complete recreation of Hitchcock's Psycho with different actors. To Van Sant, it's his first major studio film, An opportunity to do something so odd and experimental, it's essentially an art piece, all on the big studio's dime. Critically and commercially, his film is a total bomb. Unsurprisingly, what is essentially a mockery of studio remake culture is lampooned for being a complete void of originality. Its existence has left the career of Gus Van Sant and the legacy of Hitchcock's film both mostly unaffected. It's an historical novelty, just a footnote in the history of film. The original Psycho, however, likely takes up a whole chapter. Our guest Andrew Hunt talks about the legacy of Psycho and its impact on film as a whole.
1: You know, there's all kinds of Words that have been used to describe Psycho, a game changer, a a masterpiece, a classic, um, a milestone, landmark, revolutionary, a turning point, uh, one of a kind and unprecedented. You know, you can kind of go through all those words, but none of them really do justice to what an important cinematic leviathan psycho was uh, psycho's impact was huge it was uh instantaneous and it continued for decades after it was made it is often regarded as a landmark film in the transition from old hollywood to new hollywood uh the old hollywood of the uh, kind of production code era the kind of uh, lavish films that uh, were um, uh, uh, very heavily controlled and censored and, and so forth during the production code era. By the 1960s, new Hollywood was coming in with its emphasis on realism and frankness, and Psycho led the way. with It led the charge uh, long before other films like Bonnie and Clyde and, and The Graduate and, and, and Midnight Cowboy from later in the decade. Uh, Psycho really helped to usher in a kind of new look and new feel to Hollywood movies. It was pioneering in its use of uh, realistic violence, and it would influence later the coming of more violent films like Bonnie and Clyde or The Wild Bunch or A Clockwork Orange. Films that came along later that were much more uh, open with their brutality and showed it in a in a in a much more uncompromising and horrific way than the kind of old classic Hollywood films that kind of shielded you from a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, it, it, in, in that way, it was it was a real game changer. Um, some historians also regard Psycho as a proto slasher film, as a kind of uh, entry point um, for filmmakers into a new style of, of sort of uh, darker horror filmmaking uh, and you begin to see films later in the decade and into the 70s, you know, like Night of the Living Dead and, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and at The Exorcist and these kinds of sort of more truly horrifying horror films. And it's no accident that in the film that many uh, film historians uh, attribute to starting the modern day slasher cycle, John Carpenter's Halloween, from 1978 uh, Janet Lee's daughter Jamie Lee Curtis is the main character uh, Laurie Strode in the film so uh, and I and I really think that we continue to live in the long shadow of psycho today it, it is a film that its impact can still be felt uh, decades later it's uh, like I said so heavily written about studied uh, Hitchcock's uh, editing techniques and and filmmaking techniques it 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 it's singled out too for um uh anthony hopkins the film is singled out too for anthony perkins uh, performance as norman bates uh, because that performance fits so perfectly with his sort of private persona and he himself had challenges after psycho finding work he uh, actually was in some very good films after Psycho was made, uh, films like The Trial and, and Pretty Poison and uh, a number of others. He was actually in a, a sequel uh, to Psycho, Psycho 2 in in, in uh, 1983, and, there, and a number of other uh, sequels to the film. Uh, but his career never really kind of took off the way that some people thought it would uh, after Psycho. And a lot of that had to do with him being associated with with Norman Bates. And he, and he was so closely associated with that character that he himself would say in interviews later that he thought that playing Norman Bates in some ways was a great blessing because it was the role of a lifetime, but it was also in some ways a curse because it limited his career later on. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock continued to make uh, films after Psycho, uh, most notably The Birds, uh, but other films too, like Torn Curtain and Frenzy, and he would continue making films into the 1970s. Ultimately, his final film was Family Plot. His later films, though, tend to be a bit polarizing. I think that there's not the same kind of consensus opinion around his later films as there are around uh his films of the 40s and 50s right up until psycho and i think uh psycho is the kind of final consensus film that hitchcock makes that almost everybody thinks is a is a brilliant film and after uh psycho hitchcock uh continues to make films but there uh, is a lot of debate about whether his films after psycho really lived up to um his incredible output in the in the 40s and 50s leading up to psycho and and psycho itself so a lot of these films are kind of almost seen as films that are sort of made in the shadow of psycho but they just can't quite rise to that level and so hitchcock uh set the bar very very high with psycho he he made a, a masterpiece for the ages and um his films afterward which are i think quite uh, engaging and and interesting films, but certainly they don't have the same acclaim uh, and they certainly didn't have the same kind of uh, societal impact that Psycho had in its day and for decades after.
0: Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to our guest from the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, history professor, Andrew Hunt. Andrew's research interests cover the history of American pop culture, including film and television. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song when we discuss the Congo crisis of the mid-1960s. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZPods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com. That's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.